1: high-profile public figures, and regular folks like me. You love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, and so excited to say we are live and in person together. We're all like vaccinated and boosted, and we're actually together in person, and this is awesome. And what's even better is that I'm with someone who has been so influential for me personally and serves as such a great example, not just in the world of politics, but in this whole new arena of independent media outlets. But don't take my word for it. Fortune magazine had Ron Steslow as one of its 40 under 40 emerging leaders in government and politics. Ron was already on an amazing trajectory in Republican leadership circles, having been involved in redistricting efforts. He ran a major U.S. Senate campaign, worked at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, uh, was on a presidential campaign before risking it all as he took stock of his own core values and how they lined – uh, I was going to say how they lined up or didn't line up with where the modern Republican Party was headed. Ron later went on to co-found the Lincoln Project with a small handful of other disaffected Republicans. And while some of the others had a higher public profile, Ron objectively can be credited with building the following of the Lincoln Project and more significantly, raising awareness of the issues they were shedding light on that ultimately made such a key difference in the 2020 election. After leaving the... Li- I told you this is a long intro. Wow. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> After leaving the Lincoln Project, Ron launched Politicology. Now to best get at the heart of what politicology is all about, I'll just quote from the tail end of their mission statement. It's time to make sure this democracy not only survives, but that it reflects a set of values worth protecting like honesty, integrity, character, Justice Truth. Ron freaking Slow. Wow.
2: Did we write that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am so grateful for you being here. How are you doing? This is
2: this is gonna be a lot of fun. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I love doing things in person. Yeah. This is not the sunny SoCal weather that I signed up for though, although it is it is still beautiful.
1: Seventy-two and sunny. Seven, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh actually it was like forty something this morning. It was. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So. All right. So you've Uh, been in California. Um, Did I hear correctly Mm. that you appreciate good wine?
2: I do. Yeah. I don't drink a lot. I mean, I'm more of a 420 guy, to be honest, but (laughs) uh, so I don't I don't drink uh, very much alcohol, but I do like good wine.
1: I was going to say, uh, like, because you, you came from Northern California. Yeah. Have you been able to visit any vineyards or taste? <sighs> you know,
2: things? I didn't, but I did spend the weekend. I had some work to do in San Francisco. I saw my dear friend Mike Madrid, uh, oh. fellow Lincoln Project co-founder, who's we, been on this show, I believe. Yeah. We had uh, we had some some good quality time together, and uh, before I went up to Guerneville. And spent some time in Guerneville, which is this really cute, crunchy, like very granola gay town in, in the <laughs> Redwoods, like on the on the edge of the Redwoods. I kind of think of it like P-Town for my for my East Coast gay brethren. It is, it is P-Town in the Redwoods. Okay. Provincetown, Massachusetts. Oh, Provincetown. Provincetown, okay. Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh,
1: I feel like I just got like 10% cooler just You now. did. You
2: totally did. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And so um just... Time downtime cleared my head.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, it was hard. I was telling you earlier that it was hard to do as much research as I normally do because you don't do this normally. No, I don't. But from what I have been able to dig through, there was a a, a story in the New Testament that came to mind, and I hope you don't mind me. No, not at all. This is just what came to mind. It was from. Uh, It's from Matthew 18, where Jesus was confronting this rich young ruler, and he said, If you want to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Mm. So I thought of that with you as I looked at different flexion points in your life. The difference was, though, that unlike the rich young ruler— you were willing to walk away from accomplishments and success and the life as you knew it, based on truth, based on these these very qualities that mm-hmm. you mentioned in, in integrity in your in your mission statement for politicology, based on who you truly are and and what you know to be right and wrong. Is that fair to say?
2: I would say maybe it's a little bit too generous, but. It was based on who I wanted to be, mm. so I think you know one of my favorite philosophers, Northern Irish philosopher, philosophers, Pete Rollins, He has <laughs> he has this. I know <laughs> some, some of your listeners will know who he is. Yeah, some of they should definitely go look him up. He likes to say that you know we are we are always only ever caught in between who we are and who we want to be, mm. and that is the struggle of being human. But yeah, I would say there was a tipping point for me, and 2016 was it. And that was not the beginning of my, you know, wrestling with the Republican Party and everything it stood for at that point. It was the, it was the culmination.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, w- one of the other things about your formation story is that you didn't just grow up in a Christian home. You, you were a PK, you were a pastor's oh, kid. If
2: I was a pastor's kid. Yeah,
1: that's yeah, one of the other reasons PK. I was thinking of some of those uh, Bible stories. Uh, that, that's why it just, as I started yeah. at the beginning of your life, uh, it just was kind of rolling around in my brain. I don't know if you know this, by the way, so I told you I'm a Jew from Jersey. I'm a Jew yeah. from Jersey, you became a Christian. Uh, I mean, <laughs> so you went home on a Thanksgiving morning and yeah. and you know shared who you were. and. Uh, I had to go home on a Thanksgiving morning and tell my Jewish parents from New York Woo. that I'm a Christian. Woo.
2: How did that go for you? I, You know, I
1: often wondered if I went home and told them that I was gay. I, <laughs> I think I, it would have gotten much better. <laughs> my dad says no, but I don't know. I mean, it didn't—it uh, was an adventurous few years. My mother's reaction was very— um, Comical. If you could imagine um, the mother from Everybody Loves Raymond reacting to her son. Oh, I
2: can. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: I didn't know I had a son (laughs) who was walking with Jesus. And of course, it was all about her.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's right.
1: That's right. And she she. How have I failed you, my son? (laughs) Well, the other thing is she immediately associated uh, the Christian thing with. My son is a born again Republican. <laughs> like she was, I, I don't know if what she was more concerned about that I, that I was a Christian or maybe a Republican now. So, anyway, so that was my, but my dad and I, it's kind of like the origin story of this, um, this podcast. Yeah. He was objected, uh, you know, in, in all kinds of ways. But within about a month or so, um, instead of making it a fight and just turning off, he wrote me this 10 page single spaced letter to spelling literally like all the reasons why I shouldn't become a Christian. And it Mm. started a conversation that we continued having initially over email and stuff and then over brandy and, you know, around a fire pit and, you know, it over time enriched our relationship. Mm. Um, so, but that's, that's a whole other story, but you went home on a Thanksgiving morning. I
2: did on a Thanksgiving. Yeah. Right. you know, in, in dramatic flair, absolutely right after Thanksgiving dinner and and came out to my parents. I got a similar letter from my dad, actually. Oh wow! Yeah. What was what was it similar? Uh, you know, I think he thought I was confused mm. and wanted me to, to not not be confused. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah.
1: Now you you had mentioned, and I was really glad that you mentioned this on Politicology, I think the name of the documentary is Pray Away."
2: It is. It's such a convicting it's a great, documentary. Great film, yeah.
1: Because because. You know, having w- once I became a Christian, I went to a Baptist church for about ten years, and that's kind of where I was at. Mm. Uh, I, maybe that's too hard on myself, but yeah, that's definitely where the church was at.
2: I mean, I was there at one point. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. yeah. How,
1: how was that? I mean, how early? How early did you have a sense of who you were? Mm. And and, I mean, I can't imagine it was like a yeah. light bulb that went on.
2: No. Um, how early, you know, it's funny. There's a, there's a, there's a documentary coming out about the Lincoln project. Okay. Um, it's, uh, Fisher Stevens okay. and, uh, and Kareem Amir and, um, Amy Redford is Amy, Amy Redford, Robert Redford. Oh, okay. Redford, Redford or Redford's I don't Redford. Know. Yeah, Redford, yeah, Redford yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, his daughter is one of the producers and they, 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 this has a point. Okay. <laughs> this has a point. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they uh, they recently asked me for a bunch of childhood photos. Oh, and because that's part of the part of the series, and and my mom has been sending me you know childhood photos that I'm now looking back through and and texting me uh, pictures I've never seen before. Yeah. pictures that I didn't know existed, and it's so funny to me that they didn't or claimed to not have a clue (laughs) that I was gay. And uh, just looking at these photos, I mean, they're just... So what what might be a giveaway? uh, Before I learned to withdraw and hide that part of myself, it's sort of clear I had a flair for the dramatic and... Yeah, I mean, my I I originally wanted to be an actor. That was my oh. that was my uh, when I was a kid. That's yeah. what I wanted to grow up and be. And then that quickly turned into lawyer, and which is another form of actor. Yeah, <laughs> really, sure. at least yeah. the kind of lawyer that I had in mind.
1: Yeah. So what? More importantly, when you see some of those pictures, can you empathize with that kid? Yeah. And and do you sense what that inner life is like? Oh yeah.
2: Oh, big time. I mean. So I've been in therapy weekly probably for five years now, mm. and when I first started, that was one of the most jarring but helpful experiences. Um, my first therapist, who was wonderful, you know, was like, "I want you to go home and write a letter to that kid," because oh. we were talking about some, you know, some scenes from my childhood, and he was like, "I want you to write a letter to him." And that exercise, I mean, I recommend it to anybody who, you know, had a had a tough childhood. It is it's a very deep way to experience your own life, your own existence and, and to remember like actually you're just you're the same pattern of molecules and cells and atoms that are constantly recreating themselves. Yeah. As you were back then. Just new new tissue, new material, but it's the same person. And being able to bring that person forward and merge with the person you are today, with the person you perceive yourself to be today it's very it's a very profound thing to to try to do, yeah yeah
1: wow, that's interesting i, I we have uh, our, our oldest kid is twenty and our boys are eighteen and sixteen and uh, it, having kids at those ages mm-hmm. uh, it's daily exercise and reflection of like what am I bringing to this party? Yeah. That's not that shouldn't be their baggage, you know, and what do I need to what what skin do I need to shed? Um, I don't know. That that would be an interesting exercise because I'm asking myself questions like that every day. There were other flexion points um, that I was curious about like leaving the Republican Party. Mm. So that wasn't just one moment where like, oh, Trump's the nominee. I'm leaving. The-. It, it, it yeah. sounded like that was a process, but it cost you something to do. You were, dude, you were freaking accomplished. Like, like you were a rock star, you know, and, and, and not even like at that time, what, 32, 33 or like not even mid thirties yet.
2: Yeah, I don't remember.
1: But that like risking it all at that critical stage in your life and your career, what, When did that process begin for you and what was finally like the, the straw that broke the camel's back and you're like, it doesn't matter. I don't care what I lose.
2: Man. Okay. The only reason I was able to do that then was probably because at the very beginning of my career, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened in the middle, Okay. but let's go back to the beginning. After I uh, finished my first cycle in politics was 2006. Uh, which I, you know, I'd, I'd started working while I was in college, um, and then and then went on to work for a consulting firm. We did three federal races in 2006, which was a toxic year for Republicans, and mm. I helped raise 11 million dollars in that cycle, and we won all of them. Wow! And that was remarkable.
1: That was the year that Nancy first won. Nancy Pelosi first won speakership. Right? I believe so. Yeah.
2: 2006. Yeah. And uh, but this was this was sort of in the middle of the Iraq war, it was t- Katrina. Oh, Katrina had Katrina just happened, Katrina had yeah. just happened. It was a total bungling, right? It was terrible for Republicans, and and all three of our Republican clients won. In wow. And so, there was a, you know, and the, and one of the, my first boss in politics at the time, John Ensign, Senator John Ensign, Harry Reid's counterpart from Nevada, uh, went on to uh, take over the chairmanship of the NRSC. At that time oh, the National okay. Republican Senatorial Committee, which is right. responsible for running campaigns for all of the Republican Senate seats around the country and there because of that because of that chairmanship, it meant we not only the Senator's office needed to be staffed but also they had this entire building to fill for campaigns right to run the next cycle of Republican campaigns Senate campaigns so I was told there's a there's a job there's a job for you right in 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 DC the political department and I Opted out of that because I knew I wanted to travel the world. I needed to see the world, and I needed to go do it now. Because if I didn't, I never would. And is that when you did the the uh, mm-hmm. what, what do you teaching call it? Teaching English, yeah, you the the, English. the Cambridge yeah, Cambridge thing, yeah, yeah. So I uh, after that cycle, January third, about a one-way ticket to Thailand. <laughs> one-way ticket. About <laughs> a one-way ticket to Thailand, and I uh, my my plan was to be gone for at least a year, and I. You know, I didn't have money to go travel and, you know, just hop around like uh, like a lot of kids do after college. Um, I couldn't afford that. And I saved up enough money uh, to, to buy a ticket and pay for this course, which was a course in teaching English to adults without speaking the native language. Mm. And it was through Cambridge and it was the certificate that every all the language schools wanted. And I thought, OK, if I can do this, then I can at least pay my way. Uh, in at least developing countries, go live some places and work and um, do it all on my own. Mm-hmm. No program, no safety net, no anything, I can make this work. And it was the adventure of a lifetime, and I had so much fun, and first I went to Thailand and, uh, and taught, and then I went to Prague, and then I, um, about seven, eight months later, I you know I got an, another, uh, persistent emails. Hey, when you, <laughs> there's a desk here waiting for you with your name on it. In, in DC was that
1: at the NRSC? Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah and uh, and you know that's at the very beginning of your career that's really hard to say no to. Yeah. And so finally, even though I was having a great time, I accepted the offer and went back to DC. But that that intervening sort of seven, eight months, I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about what it takes to be happy what it doesn't take to be happy. And because I did it to just on my own, I realized, you know, from that point forward as I got back to DC and throughout throughout my career, I, I always looked back on that season and it made me feel like if the shit hit the fan mm. and I walked away from whatever I was doing, I could still go do that and be perfectly happy and and have a great time yeah, and and be fulfilled as a human being. And, uh, and it was kind of like that, you know, overcoming that gave me a sense of like,
1: wow, you know, so that, um, so (laughs) if I didn't know your childhood and upbringing, I would say that's, it it sounds like, uh, someone who's influenced by Buddhist philosophy, Uh. you know, have no encumbrances kind of a thing. So spiritually, where Mm. were you going to church at that time or where were you at?
2: Uh, at, at that point in the early days, yeah, I was dabbling. Oh, <laughs> I think I was just—I I think I had stopped going. I was finished with college, uh, but while I was in college, I, I had—I had t- definitely had too much baggage to go to a, a, non- a traditional non-denominational kind of sort of Jesus is my boyfriend music in Sunday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, it was not—I I couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, too much dissonance between who I knew I was at that point and, and the, the sort of identity that I was growing into and that. And, um, so, but I did go to a, for a little while, uh, an all black missionary gospel church oh. in, um, in Reno and had a great time, had a really great time, uh, That's awesome. with, with that community. And, um, yeah, it was wonderful. And, uh, yeah, but that was, that was basically the end of my church career. I went to a couple of other churches in DC once in a while, but eventually I just stopped going altogether. Yeah. I didn't belong there. And I had, I had this just sneaking feeling that something was not right. And I was also, I was also separating myself from all of the, all of the questions That would cause a great unraveling Um, Mm. (laughs) because, you know, I knew that being gay and I was in a relationship, closeted relationship for like three and a half years at that point. I knew that that was not compatible with the evangelical tradition that I grew up in. Yeah. And I knew that at some point. I would have to reconcile those two things, and I wasn't ready to do it at that point. Mm. So it was easier for me to just walk away, put it in, in a box, and and just don't open it. Church, yeah. I mean. Church, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until I was 27 or so that that changed.
1: Yeah, and I, I would imagine that a lot of churches, well, to use Obama's phrase, were evolving at the time. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, there, so the, was he. <laughs> yeah. 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 So there were, I mean, we, we actually found a church and I'm literally just learning this stuff just now. Uh, I've been thinking about it for years and years and years, but, um, I just learned the term, not just accepting, but affirming. Mm, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm learning different, um, theological postures, yeah. uh, dispositions that we as a church body can take and individually. But at the end of the day, I guess we just have to ask Hard questions of yeah. ourselves and the people around us. So, where where are you at now? Like, well, here with you <laughs> in this
2: studio. Actually, that's
1: <laughs> no, that's a profound answer because because like, yeah, just being present. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah. Um, so that reminds me, one of the most profound theological concepts, uh, non-Christian Jewish uh, philosopher Heschel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Talks about. The how does he put it? The um, intersection of time with eternity is now, mm-hmm. and it's um, if you believe in God, it's it's it, like every moment is actually another act of creation. You know, like the, the, this Man. that next moment isn't guaranteed. Like so, every moment is another act of creation. So just like being here.
2: All right, you're gonna make me do it. Look. I have something to read to you, oh. because you mentioned time. Okay. Um, the lights are going. On.
1: Oh, there you go. Okay. That might be Heschel from the grave, or maybe it's God, like with the lights, or maybe it's just a freaking highway. So, so um,
2: this is this is this is a bit of a reading, but I but actually I think it could frame a lot of let's know, do what it. I'm going to talk about. But, yeah. Uh, so there's this there's this brilliant. Uh, sorry, I I really spend a lot of time thinking about the bigness and the smallness of the universe. Yeah. Okay. And the yeah. reason that there's this competition in among sci- among the smartest scientists in the world. That's Just, right.
1: You're a Schaefer guy.
2: I who Francis, Francis Schaefer, Schaefer, yeah, the God who is there. He's not there in yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the trilogy. Yeah. I was once upon a time. Yeah, okay. That version okay. of me is dead. Oh. but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I okay. mean, I understand what I understand what Francis Schaefer was trying to do yeah. for himself. Right. Francis Schaeffer was trying to tell himself a story. He was uh-huh. trying really, really hard to tell himself a story. Yeah, and it worked for him. It worked for me for a few years. It doesn't work for me anymore. So um, okay, but I love this quest that human beings are on to reconcile the bigness and the smallness because they're they're so far irreconcilable, right? The universe is expanding faster yeah. than it's you know faster and faster it's yeah. accelerating in the rate of its expansion every year and that is that is not compatible with Newtonian physics is not compatible with the with the with the world that has yielded iPhones and skyscrapers it's not yeah. and then yeah. there's the smallness of the universe where we're learning that you know atoms can appear here and disappear and then appear not atoms subatomic particles right right right, right. can disappear and appear somewhere else and they they also do not comply with the laws of Newtonian physics yeah that is Mind blowing, right? So so I spend I spend some time reading. My favorite my favorite thing is when physicists start talking like mystics <laughs> yeah, yeah. or or poets or uh, so this is one such instance. His name okay. is Carlo Rivelli, he's an Italian theoretical oh. physicist. Okay. And his specialty is quantum gravity. Okay. So this is how he ends a book, and the book is about time. Since you mentioned time, yeah, yeah. I told you I would bring it back. There you go. Okay, <clears throat> you ready? Yeah. We are more complex than our mental faculties are capable of grasping. The hypertrophy of our frontal lobes is considerable, and has taken us to the moon, allowed us to discover black holes, and to recognize that we are the cousins of ladybirds. Ladybirds are ladybugs. But it is still not enough to explain ourselves clearly to ourselves. We're not even clear about what it means to understand. We see the world and we describe it. We give it an order. We know little of the actual relation between what we see of the world and the world itself. We know that we are myopic. We barely see a tiny window of the vast electromagnetic spectrum emitted by things. We do not see the atomic structure of matter, not the curvature of space, We see a coherent world that we extrapolate from our interaction with the universe, organized in simplistic terms that our devastatingly stupid brain is capable (laughs) of handling. We think of the world in terms of stones, mountains, clouds, and people, and this is the world for us. About the world, independent of us, we know a good deal without knowing how much this good deal is. Our thinking is prey to its own weakness, but even more so to its own grammar. It takes only a few centuries for the world to change from devils, angels, and witches to atoms and electromagnetic waves. It takes only a few grams of mushrooms for the whole of reality to dissolve before our eyes, before reorganizing itself into a surprisingly different form. It takes... The experience of spending time with a friend who has suffered a serious schizophrenic episode a few weeks with her struggling to communicate to realize that delirium is a vast piece of theatrical equipment with the capacity to stage the world. And that it is difficult to find arguments to distinguish it from those great collective deliriums of ours that are the foundations of our social and spiritual life and our understanding of the world. Aside, perhaps, from solitude and the fragility of those who detach themselves from the commonplace order of things, the vision of reality and the collective delirium that we have organized has evolved and has turned out to have worked reasonably well in getting us to this point. The instruments we have found for dealing with it and attending to it have been many, and reason has revealed itself to be among the best of these. It is precious, but it is an instrument, a pincer. We use it to handle a substance that is made of fire and ice, something that we experience as living and burning emotions. These are the substances of which we are made. They propel us, they drag us back, and we cloak them with fine words. They compel us to act. And something of them always escapes from the order of our discourses, since we know that in the end, every attempt to impose order leaves something outside the frame. And it seems to me that life, This brief life is nothing other than this. The incessant cry of these emotions that drive us, that we sometimes attempt to channel in the name of a God, a political faith, in a ritual that reassures us that fundamentally everything is in order, in a great and boundless love. And the cry is beautiful. Sometimes it is a cry of pain. Sometimes it is a song. And song, as Augustine observed, is the awareness of time. It is time. It is the hymn of the Vedas that is itself the flowering of time. In the Benedictus of Beethoven's Mrs. Solemnus, the song of the violin is pure beauty, pure desperation, pure joy. We are suspended, holding our breath, feeling mysteriously that this must be the source of meaning, that this is the source of time. Then the song fades and ceases. The silver thread is broken, the gold lantern is shattered. The amphora at the fountain breaks. The bucket falls into the well. The earth returns to dust. And it is fine like this. We can close our eyes, rest. This all seems fair and beautiful to me. This is time. (laughs) Wow. We Um, are meaning-making machines, my friend. Wow. That's what we are. Stories. (sighs) We're storytellers. Yeah. We tell stories to ourselves, we tell stories to others, and sometimes we tell stories to try to change the world. And that's what politics is.
1: Right. There's a lot to digest I there.
2: <laughs> uh, Sorry.
1: That's okay. That's okay.
2: Uh, I carry it around on my phone because because it, it, it does something to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, to riff on that theme a bit, I'm trying to follow with uh, what, what is the writer's name again?
2: Carlo Ravelli.
1: So uh, I'm not sure if he's going the way of meaninglessness, like this is all meaningless, or if he is putting another uh, another vocabulary to bringing order out of chaos,
2: at least in our own minds, right? So you know what that passage makes me think of, reminds me of? What is that? Um, Rob Bell does this great bit where he talks about, a hypothetical realization that you know there is no God.
1: So, b- yeah. by the way, I oh. want you to go into that. But sure. for our listeners, I was going to ask you about Rob Bell's "Love Wins." Yeah. So, could you just <laughs> uh, just tell tell our audience yeah. who Rob Bell is? Uh, and- uh,
2: Rob Bell Rob is Bell. a um, Rob Bell was a Gen X, really cool, hip pastor when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. He had these videos that really made you think. Yeah. And my dad loved sending me those videos. And he was like the pastor all the pastors wanted to be. <laughs> you know, yeah. he was like, like the cool guy who was really smart. It was very clear, he was really smart, and he was great yeah. at telling a story. And when I was 27 and I was in the middle of redistricting, I was drawing the lines in Nevada, the congressional district and state legislative district boundaries, that was 2011. Rob Bell's book came out. It was around that time. It had okay. either just come out or was coming out that year, and his book is called *Love Wins*, and the subtitle is *Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived*. <laughs> Which I thought, just thought was beautiful. It's Very so fun. Humble like, This is great. This is, this is fantastic. <laughs> what are we going to do here? Can't yeah. wait. Yeah. And um, it was funny because I, I only knew of Rob Bell because of my dad, and you know, I was familiar with his other work like *Velvet Elvis* and. And so I picked up this book and basically what he does is presents you with some very powerful questions about hell and what is the nature of God, the God that you believe in, right? What is the nature of of love? What does that mean if, if God is... If God is love as we are taught in Sunday school, what does that actually mean? What are the implications of that? Yeah. If that is true. And and the questions there were the beginning of, of an honest look at who I was. Mm. And, and, oh. and 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 sort of began an unraveling, a deconstructing wow. of not just the Evangelical tradition that I had inherited yeah and was sort of ignoring was I was running from right but also <laughs> eventually uh, that would lead to deconstructing politics because the more I understood myself, yeah the more I began to understand what I was doing in the world and um, oh man yeah
1: oh man, so that must have been. How hard was that to reckon with some of the things that you had already done? Like, I, one of the th- questions I was going to ask you yeah. about was like the redistricting. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, what.
2: <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> yeah, what was
1: that like? I was curious, I mean, partly about the tactics, the state yeah. objectives, yeah, as sure. well as the Let's actual goals of, of the redistricting. Yeah. What, what, I forgot the name of the, the organization oh. you were part of, because you were like a lead.
2: Oh, I mean, look, it was called Fun for Nevada's Future, and I was the redistricting director. But look, all that, it, it was just a pack. It was just a state pack that yeah. was spun up for the purposes of doing redistricting. Yeah. And, um, and so part of that was advising the governor. Uh, basically, that you know, it was it was the Republican um, effort uh, to um, sort of. Outs- I was the outside consultant who was drawing the the lines for Republicans, um, and the Democrats had an equivalent version. Okay. They were doing exactly the same thing. So I had a counterpart at a pack and another, you know, on the other side, and I was charged with drawing uh, the best maps I could. Yeah. And that means not just the congressional district maps. Nevada had picked up a seat in two thousand eleven, so yeah. we got a, we had a new district to draw into the ma- to the landscape, and of course, everybody wants to be drawn into it. Yeah, and redistricting is one of those things that's sort of misunderstood, and ironically, it is not one of the things that I have very much. That that year, that exercise was actually one of the most educational. Um, sort of professionally satisfying oh, okay. experiences I've ever had because I learned so much so fast
1: Right, because I had to. But there were other things that you did in your career yeah, that I mean, you're like, holy shit, what have I done?
2: Yeah, I mean, like I have this photo of me and George W. Bush on a stage um, during his 2004 campaign, and I didn't realize what was going on at that time.
1: Well, 04 is when— um, Exactly. Car, car, was it Karl rover. or was it Rove. the— it was Rove. Yeah. Ken Melman. Ken Melman. And Ken Melman who put all the initiatives on exactly. various state ballots.
2: Yeah. In 2004, and I didn't realize this at the time. It but was Prop 8 in
1: California. Exactly. Yeah.
2: yeah. What they were doing was systematically weaponizing anti-LGBT sentiment from the Republican base in order to boost turnout in key, key sta- in states, in swing states, yeah. exactly, during 2004. And Ken Melman, who who is gay and then and at the time was the chairman of the RNC, then later apologized to the gay community for that. And I don't think that he's really been forgiven since then because, mm. um, you know, he did know better, right? <laughs> you know, right. Um, he, he knew what he was doing. So, yeah, but redistricting, I mean, redistricting is this inherently partisan process, no matter how you slice it. There is no way to get around that now. The the law the lines that you draw have to comply with federal, state, and federal and state basically constitutional and then federal and then state uh, laws. So there's a hierarchy of statute that you have to comply with. Yeah. And then beneath that there are there are different kinds of standards uh, that you that you attempt to incorporate to the best of your ability when you're also provided you're also in compliance with the higher laws and while you're doing all of that while you're satisfying all of the legal requirements of map you're also looking at political data to to try to maximize your team's likelihood of holding on to as many seats as possible right so this is why it's inherently partisan and even the you know the the independent redistricting commissions right now are very sort of trendy very you know in vogue that's cool they're they're probably a step in the right direction they're better but an independent redistricting commission takes you know for it can be three people it can be five people but ultimately it's much smaller than a legislature which is ultimately charged with drawing these lines yeah an independent redistricting commission takes the backroom deals and the i want my house drawn into this district and the all of the the stuff that the self-dealing and all that stuff it takes that and then it puts it behind a wall where you can't see those deals being made because it's just three people, for example, in, uh, in that commission, and they're the ones who are fielding all of these requests, as opposed to this being more out in the open and debated at the legislative level. Yeah. So it actually makes it less transparent in some cases. Now, different states have different models of this, but but it can actually you know be more problematic uh, in some cases. But I was
1: going to ask a question about the Cook political report and redistricting and all that stuff. Yeah. But Okay, yeah, so let's do the Cook Political Report. Amy
2: Walters is the new editor.
1: She is, Mm -hmm. she is, but what's the fellow's name who— Dave Wasserman. Dave Wasserman. He's been on the show. Yes, (laughs) he has. That's why I know about him. Yeah, he's terrific. Yeah. So he had a a more optimistic view of redistricting now Mm -hmm. that I hadn't heard. It was a really interesting analysis.
2: Optimistic for who? Well— (laughs) <laughs> it, it wasn't.
1: It wasn't as bearish about yeah. how many seats yeah, sure. Republicans could pick up. Yeah, sure. So, uh, be, and, and the and the reason he said is because in the last cycle they maxed out redistricting for Republicans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what what are your thoughts about that? But also more big picture redistricting now. Like, how do you see it going?
2: Well, Dave, I would never argue with Dave about uh, the number of seats Republicans can pick up. He says, I think, last I saw, you know, plus five looks like what they can pick up at this point. Uh, okay. They will pick some up due to redistricting. They yeah. will, they have the advantage in state legislatures all around the country, and Republicans have had that advantage for now 20, 30 years. Prior to that, Democrats had the advantage because they controlled more state legislatures and they did the same thing. Right. But most people don't remember that because it was so long ago. Right. But that's why I say redistricting is this inherently partisan process where whoever's in charge of the legislature is going to draw the maps in as favorable a way to themselves, to their own party, as they can get away with legally. That's just how it works. Yeah. So yeah, Republicans are the bad guys right now, and they are the bad guys when it comes to redistricting because they're 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 gerrymandering. And and we should be clear: the word gerrymander is um, is more of a legal term of art now than it is a you know we use it as a pejorative in redistricting, but people think that drawing lines is inherently gerrymandering. It's not. That's called redistricting, right? So when something is a gerrymander, for example, it's a racial gerrymander or a political gerrymander. That means that the lines have been drawn outside of compliance with the law. Oh. And, that the, and the court has decided that. So gerrymandering applies to a to a specific you know legally applies to a specific kind of district but the intent is understood right we're trying to draw both sides are trying to draw district boundaries that favor their own party including democrats yeah so what was your question? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was asking. So, also, big picture, like yeah. with the redistricting that's oh, happening yeah. now, You're how do you see it?
2: Midterms, yeah. like, what is this going to do to the midterms? Or well, restric- we'll, yeah, we'll so, get to that. But yeah, so yeah. Republicans, you know, control state legislatures around the country. By and large, they they have a they have a built in advantage because of that going into redistricting, and um, and also, frankly, the way they the you know the law as it is currently written, the Voting Rights Act as it is currently written actually in in some cases, may, maybe in many cases, advantages Republicans because of the way because of the way the way that the law requires the drawing of minority-majority districts. The Voting Rights Act is supposed to protect the rights of minorities to elect candidates of their choosing. Mm-hmm. And there are historical reasons we need those protections. Well the way Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act works, if there is a community of, uh, of a protected class that is geographically compact, is uh, cohesive, it votes cohesively, votes as a block, and makes up at least 50% of the size of a district— the constitutionally required or legally required size of a, co- of a district based on population, then – and so, for example, if you can draw a line around it and that community makes up more than 50 percent, then you have to draw the line around it. That's base, that's, a, that's a very shorthanded way of looking at the law. But that applies to lots of – for example, in 2011, it applied, it, it applied to a, um, a district in southern Nevada at the center of the Las Vegas Valley, which was largely uh, Hispanic. And there were enough, there were essentially a large enough Hispanic community in Southern Nevada to draw a majority minority district in, in Southern Nevada. And the, the, the consequences of, of drawing districts like that are that if you look at it through a partisan lens as opposed to through the racially protected uh, class lens, the demographic lens, well, what does that do to Nevada's, uh, you know, voting uh, partisan composition of these districts? Well, it also so happens that in the center of Las Vegas is the highest concentration of Democratic voters. Mm. So what you're doing is even outside of that Hispanic community, you're putting lots of Democrats all into one district, which means there are fewer Democrats right. in other districts, right? So now that is that is the way the the law was written, and by the way, in 2011. It wasn't my maps and it wasn't the Democrats' maps that ultimately won the day. It was the court's uh, – the court appointed a special master to draw the maps. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened the court's special master, their maps looked a lot like mine. <laughs> like they, <laughs> that's just like – they their maps looked very similar to the ones that I drew. Yeah. So, yeah. So, now a, so An illegal in, version of doing that.
1: In, in all seriousness, we'll, though, yeah. let, let me just uh, push back on that point yeah, for a second. Please. Was that because you had – a moral compass, and that that you balanced out with your strategic compass, and they happen to.
2: Yeah, so so that was an exercise for me that was that was pretty straightforward. I don't think that in that now there were certainly redistricting operations in other states that uh, that were looking at th- things pr- probably a lot differently uh, mm-hmm. than than I was, but. I, I think the maps that we drew in Nevada were actually quite fair and and, um, and everybody was happy at the end of the day, or as happy as they were going to get. Um, so I
1: have another question yeah. about that. I've learned over the last year that the conservative legal movement is something very different than what I had thought it mm. was. And in fact, it proved to be, if you were listening to like uh, I, I, Was Sarah Isger a colleague of yours? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. When you worked for Carly Fiorina, right? Yep. Um, Sarah Isger and David French's podcast, uh, yeah, Advisory they do Opinions. A good job. The, uh, I just I was really encouraged and I came mm-hmm. to believe that in a lot of ways the conservative legal movement were the he, were some of the heroes of the 2020 election yeah they were um, but so not
2: con- not and we should not confuse them with the Trumpist lawyers right but that is a different set of grifters um, and liars but there there are some really brilliant conservative legal minds like David French yeah and I have I have differences with David's uh, opinion for example he actually he re- actually <sighs> He came out in favor of gay marriage in, I think, 2010 or 2014, 2010 or so, and then in 2014 reversed his position and decided that his original reasoning for being in favor of marriage equality was flawed, and I just thought that was, like, I I just So, very problematic uh, set of reasoning, I think, from David, but in other domains, he has done some really great work, especially outreach to the evangelical community, where he has incredible credentials, bona fides advocating that they vote against donald trump in the 2020 election right gave some really great uh speeches on that front and yeah. hopefully convinced a lot of people um, and then tying yeah. it
1: back into redistricting yeah. i think it's a way of thinking about a fidelity to the law yes. and the intent of the law
2: yes right yes that is that is true there's an entire tradition of jurisprudence that is Profoundly reverent to the original intent of the texts, and so you have uh, you have textualism, or you have you know. Uh, uh, it's funny. I was just having a conversation with um, Lenay Erickson uh, about judges, and that's on politicology, because I was talking with Carly Fiorina, chief of staff, and we we're wondering like, why don't Democrats have an answer to the Federalist Society, which obviously is ha- has become sort of. A corrupted institution but but its roots were in a particular way of viewing the law. They had a coherent judicial philosophy, and they were doing everything they could to get judges appointed to federal benches yeah and uh, and they've been extremely effective at that, extremely effective at that and the Democrats don't have an answer to that, and my friend was joking like you know when when Mitch McConnell retires, they are going to erect statues of him at the Federalist Society for everything he has done for them, right? Because of the way he has ushered in all those judges to benches. And Linay, who has actually worked in this domain on the Democratic side, who has tried to organize in that way, basically it comes down to the Democrats don't have not been able yet to articulate a coherent judicial philosophy. They mm-hmm. don't have one, and it's and and the closest they have is a living constitution uh, philosophy, which doesn't sound very good to a lot of people. Right. It sounds kind of scary. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to interpret it to mean a new thing every day. And, yeah. and that isn't that isn't actually what it means. It's just that they haven't been able to articulate something that is coherent and compelling right. and enough to organize around. And so Democrats just have a weak judicial game. That's just how it is.
1: So this might be, I, I don't know quite where, where this is going, but this yeah. this is what... I've had I've had some run-ins with folks that had an objection to something I've said, and I wasn't sure what I said. I, I don't want to use the word cancel culture because it it, it just oversimplifies oh, yeah. it and puts it in a basket. And but but let's go there. All right. Well, <laughs> um, I, I've I've run into some trouble, yeah. and part of it is that I. I it seems like a bunch of my friends who I love. Mm-hmm. Um, Who are who would describe themselves as very, very liberal, very, very progressive? That there were certain moments, uh, certain moments when our whole country was going through, you know, real turmoil. Everybody was hypersensitive, and we were trying to be compassionate with each other. But inevitably, I might ask a question that sounded insensitive, Mm -hmm. and I felt like a lot of my friends got up and read like a book Mm -hmm. or or a playbook or something, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't given that playbook. Mm You know, that there wasn't this like transcendent set of morals and behaviors and right and wrong that I could like read and abide by, mm-hmm. whether it was like putting the right whatever thing on my profile page or, or um, you, I don't know,
2: it, like Virgin signaling.
1: Yes, yeah. yes. And then, and then also in the aftermath, there were some folks. Who And in, there's one thing that's still happening. I'm still in conversations about this. And there are some folks who are just so awesome. And, like, we get into these great edifying dialogue, uh, a great edifying dialogue, and I learn something. And, y- you know, we all come out better for it. But then there's others who it's like, nope, I'm one of those. Yeah. You know, I might as well be Trump him yeah. fucking self. Like, yeah. like I, I, I'm yeah, done. Like, I there's no uh, rehabilitation. There's no redemption.
2: There's no grace.
1: There's, there's no grace. Bingo. Bingo, and and so what made me think of that is what you're talking about with the uh, Democratic Party's um, judicial philosophy. There's is there like a transcendent philosophy, at least even if it's just even if it's still in dialogue and it is living in a way. But yeah, that's
2: well, I've had a handful of things to say. But first, okay. <laughs> uh, how does that make you feel?
1: Oh man, uh, well really, uh, self-conscious, really insecure, really bad because I feel like, like I'm not even redeemable or in the way that Archie Bunker was sometimes like, am I that guy? You know, like I, 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 what I lose sleep over isn't necessarily like, yeah, it bothers me when somebody talks about white male privilege and is talking about me, uh, because I'm like, dude, do you know me? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, do you know my family's story? Like, part of it is yeah. like just defensive. Like, do you know my family's story? Do you know my people were like getting raped and killed? Mm-hmm. You know, half my family died in the ovens in Germany. The other half died in Eastern Europe, or were, you know, like our houses were burned down. And that's, you know, I'm, I, I'm a product of that. Yeah. Like, you know, so part of it is that defensiveness. Uh, but part of it that I do lose sleep over is, oh shit, am I culpable? Mm. Am I part of the problem? Mm. And the answer is probably yes to a degree, because uh, we're all part of the problem. But is there an opportunity to understand the degree to which I am, and specifically how I am, and then heal from that, get better mm-hmm. from that? And how do I do that? But if I'm not given the permission— With agency. Oh, man. Well, like Juneteenth, I got to admit, I didn't know—like, mm-hmm. I had a really good pu- public school education. We, we didn't learn didn't about Juneteenth. About yeah. I didn't like I, I'm like, "Hey guys, how do we observe this? How do we honor this?" Mm-hmm. And like asking that question in 2020 was like, "Nope, nope, nope. you don't know it. Oh,, you're, you're bad. You're, you're bad, you're out. Yeah, you know, And I want like I felt bad that I was in that yeah. place. so
2: yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. So you feel the way a lot of people feel because because of that posture. This is a really <laughs> such a, such a dicey subject.
1: Well, one other thing, and but this But it's is, not
2: by podcast, so I don't have to read the emails yeah. <laughs> that are going to come in. Well,
1: so, so- One one other thing yeah. I will say, and I, and, yeah. and then I, I really want to hear, uh, the other thing is that I will admit that there are moments where I'm like, fuck all y'all. Mm-hmm. Now, now, now you have me as yeah. the, what you've done is I'm never going to be persuaded to your, whatever it is that you're trying to convince me of. Now, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like, um, now we're adversaries. Yeah. And that is just the opposite. Yeah. Of, of what I think any of us w- of goodwill want yeah. to accomplish. Yeah. Right?
2: Well, let's go back to storytelling. Okay. That's a story. Just like everything else is a story. And it's a story that doesn't include you.
1: Right. Right.
2: It inherently excludes you. I mean, you're made to feel excluded in the way that story was told to you yeah. at, in those interactions. That isn't the only version of the story. Yeah. It's the story is the version you were told. You, you were excluded. From right. That.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly how I felt. I felt like there was a party of sorts going yeah. on and I definitely was not invited. Whether it's just because of how much melanin I have in my skin or yeah. because of what kind of yeah. parts I got between my legs. Or yeah. I, I, like, I don't even know. Like, yeah. from one day to the next, I don't, I don't even know.
2: Good politicians tell unifying and inclusive stories. One of the first rules I learned in politics is that it is a game of addition and not subtraction mm. if you want to win. If you understand the dynamics of winning, politics is about addition. Right. So good politicians learn how to tell inclusive, unifying stories that attract the most people. I just had a conversation with Steve Israel, who was the chair of the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee on uh, politicalology, on politicalology,
1: and politicalology plus. <laughs> and politicology plus, recommended. Actually, yes, that's true.
2: <laughs> and uh, this is this is the 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 Democratic equivalent of you know the basically they're running they're. His job as chair of this organization is to run campaigns for all of the House races that are competitive in a in a year, and to build a majority or fight to having a majority of seats in the House. Now, how do you do that? You have to focus on addition. You have to focus on uh, on the overall balance of power and not individual seats. But it's always about building the biggest coalition possible. That's that's where ultimately power comes from. But there are there are. Divisive stories as well, or there there are versions of stories that are that are meant to divide, and that can be an effective tool depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But it u- doesn't ultimately unite people, and it doesn't ultimately add to your numbers. Now, here's how here's how I see this problem that you're talking about uh, with you know the the emphasis of skin color in, everywhere, and. Look, I'm not, an, I'm not an academic, and I'm not an expert in, in these domains, but I've tried to learn and understand as much as I can, and I get to ask smart people questions all the time. There's some really useful work that Jonathan Haidt is doing around this. Jonathan Haidt's one of the most respected American intellectuals we've ever had, um, at least living. And he looks at the root of the critical theories in academia, now critical race theory is one everybody's heard of, yeah. but it's part of a body of academic work yeah. uh, that includes gender studies. It includes it includes a certain way of looking at texts and interprets them differently. It's part of a postmodern uh, philosophy, postmodern body of work. Well, one of the one of the one of the devices, and it looks at identity. Right? Okay. So this is actually academic identity politics. We hear identity politics all the time. What does yeah. that mean in common parlance? Well, usually it means you are you are appealing to a certain aspect of a voter's identity in order to build affinity with them to make them feel like they're part of your group and that they should vote for you because of that identity, that shared aspect of identity. Right. right. And usually when it's applied in that way, it assumes that the voter also shares values with the person that they're going to vote for. But part of the pickle that the Democratic Party has gotten itself into is that it is now assuming, Mike, and Mike Madrid and I just talked about this, it's now assuming, for example, that Hispanic voters share the values of the Democratic Party and that they are automatic votes right. for the Democratic Party. And we now know that is not true. <laughs> if you take California Hispanics out of the national sample, it looks like Hispanics around the country, uh, Republicans are getting about 50 percent of those votes. Yeah. That's staggeringly high. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a profound problem electorally for Democrats, and it's it's also going to come as a uh, uh, as a very unhappy surprise for for many of them. Now the smart operatives get this, but there are there's a lot of operatives and and particularly on the fringes who don't care or, don't, or who don't understand this this sort of the principle of adding. Anyway, back to back to the critical theories. So it emphasizes identity, and there's a use for that in the body of academic work it comes from. There's even a use for it in law, but what happens is, you may have seen this this device floating around, but there's a, um, in order to communicate how identity shapes power, there's a matrix that's drawn and it's like a wheel with a bunch of spokes coming out of the center. Okay. And each of those spokes represents an axis of identity. So you might have at the one at one end of a spoke white and then at the under, other end of the spoke non white. On another spoke that goes through the center, you might have uh it might be a gender spoke, and at one end, at the top end, uh you might have female or, okay. or, or woman and then and the other end men. You might have cisgender uh, trans. You might have gay, straight, right? Basically, lots of different spokes of identity. And what happens is all of these – There's a there's a horizontal plane drawn through the center of this wheel. And above that spoke is the privileged ends of the axis. And below that spoke are the oppressed – and what happens is when you draw it in this way, everybody above the line, ultimately take, the, the, the device takes on a moral valence. And everybody above the line becomes bad, right. and everybody below the line becomes good. Morally bad and morally good. And that is deeply problematic. It's very divisive. Wow, that's so categorical. Yeah. It's very categorical, yeah. And so I think you see this playing out. When, when someone says, you know, check your privilege, it's not said in a in an invitational way <laughs> it's not said in a graceful way or gracious no it's
1: usually convicting way it's usually convicting, it's usually convicting.
2: Yeah. It's, yeah and so what happens is you have you have people weaponizing this this particular you know way of viewing the world that leads to some people are good by virtue of the color of their skin, and some people are bad by virtue of the color of their skin, right? And and by virtue of any other aspect of their identity, yeah. Right. So I'm a cis white gay male, and if I weren't gay, I would be in the uh, in sort of one of the most uncomfortable places to be right now, which is at the at the on the top half. Most of my identity spokes, spokes right, would yeah. be at the top half of that. And, and therefore I would be a morally bad person. That's so interesting. Yeah. I've
1: never heard it illustrated in exactly that way, yeah. but I'm, in, I'm, I'm mostly it's... on a surface level. Yeah. I can be identified in most of the bad mm-hmm. ways in yeah. this illustration, but, yeah, sure. but the truth of one's family and history and story and humanity
2: is lost is very, very different. Yeah.
1: You very, know? very different.
2: And also, so are your values. Right. So 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 is agency. And so my struggle with this way of viewing the world is that- Wait, is wait, wait. It,
1: you, yeah. That's the second time you used the word agency. So yeah. uh, expound on that just I for a second. I mean
2: agency as in uh, volition, right. as in having, having an emphasis on you as an individual and your actions, your choices. Yeah, right? that's, yeah. That's what I mean by agency. Okay, okay, and, right. I don't want to use the word free will because I don't really believe that exists, but that's a different conversation.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, That's like for our other podcast. That's a different podcast. (laughs) Um,
2: But but, uh, we'll call it volition. Okay. So this way of viewing the world, I believe, overemphasizes group identity and characteristics and underemphasizes or completely dismisses individual responsibility and agency. And that's ultimately my problem with it. Or why I think it's why there's division, divisiveness, controversy uh, as its fruit. Yeah, yeah, um, that's yeah.
1: Uh, some some not not now. I've I've shared this illustration on on this program before, but I do want to share with you maybe over sushi.
2: Yes. Okay. Uh, cool. Uh,
1: I'm going to talk to you about Jay Cameron Carter, great theologian and poet. His illustration of, of we were talking before about the, the very, very big mm-hmm. uh, and the very, very little, the macro and the micro and his illustration of ja- using jazz. Yes. He was talking about the body of Christ. He was mm-hmm. uh, he's a mm-hmm. Christian uh, theologian. Uh, I think he teaches at Indiana now, but he, he was using jazz as an illustration because, well, I guess I'm going to yeah, share the. Please uh, do. Yeah. So he was talking about um, Coltrane. Mm-hmm. And Coltrane was talking about his his recordings and his experiences playing with with Thelonious Monk, mm-hmm. and he Coltrane said that his virtuosity as a musician was never at at a higher peak than when he was playing with Coltrane and other virtuosos for a couple of reasons. There were number one, his his own individual virtuosity w- was really heightened because number one he and monk and um who is their percussionist you know they they were all following the same score mm-hmm. they you know in jazz there's a lot of freedom mm-hmm. within that composition right yeah. but they're following that movement whether it was monk's composition or coltrane's composition so they were faithful to that that score. And within that score, they had a lot of, of freedom within it. But two is when he was playing with other virtuosos, they brought all of their individuality yeah. to that common composition. Yeah. Right? So th- I think there is that balance of like playing the music. Totally. And playing the bigger thing. Totally. You know, and com- communicating Blue Monk or whatever it is that they were playing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so they, they were playing this bigger thing that had an impact, that, that was the sound of that time and that moment. But at the same time, they were at their best yes. individually. Yes. Right? Exactly. So there's a value yeah. to the individual there human is. being.
2: And there's also a value to the group. To the collective, as well, coming, the collective. coming together. Totally. Right? Yes. It's, it's not either or, it's both and. Yes. But, it's, but, it, yeah. but it, it has to be both and. Yeah. yeah. There has to be a role for them. Yeah. So, I totally agree.
1: Speaking of both and, I'm going to bring this to politics for a second, and then cool. we, we got to land this plane sometime soon.
2: Yeah. Totally.
1: So I don't want to talk too much about Lincoln Project. Um, yeah. Is it The Lincoln Project or Lincoln the,
2: Pro- As the guy who created the branding, The Lincoln Project.
1: The yeah. Lincoln Project. There you go. Okay, yeah. The Lincoln Project. Yeah. So as mentioned, Ron, I don't know if you would say this about yourself, but objectively like somebody who's looked at the, you know, Ron is the one. They were at zero. They were a non-entity. They were just a bunch of people that came together that were like, this is crazy, and we got to do something about it. Ron is the one that got them from zero to, like, millions of followers, millions of engaged citizens checking into the podcast and the content and all the things that they were doing. Ron is the one who built that following. Now, Madrid, one of my other – Mike Madrid, one of my other favorite people on the planet and in politics, he eats numbers for breakfast.
2: He does eat numbers for breakfast. I'm so glad that stuck. I'm so glad that stuck. <laughs> but, but between you two –
1: Addition, you you were talking about addition and coalitions, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So I I think between Madrid with his uh, real understanding of of numbers, where the numbers are, um, your ability to strategize and and build audiences or build, you know, engaged people, engaged Mm -hmm. voters. Number one, how did you identify those those persuadable? Where that persuadable 2% or 3% or 5% or 10% were? Um, And how did you determine how to reach them and engage with those voters? Because as we saw in Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and ultimately Georgia, we saw that that's what it took Mm -hmm. to identify a small, small percentage and persuade them. How did, between you and Madrid in particular, Mike Madrid in particular, how did you identify that? And how did you come up with the kind of engagement, what, what, what it would take to get them involved and persuade them.
2: Yeah. Do you want to do a different podcast? Oh, <laughs> so
1: we, can, we can totally do we that. got nine minutes I left. Know, I know. Counter. I'm looking at the <laughs> clock right now.
2: Okay. I'll, I'll share a, a, couple of, a couple of quick things. Okay. Uh, but at the very beginning, we had some really cool data. And that data is what we call first-party data. Okay. In, in you know, digital world and marketing world. First party data means that you own it. There are people who have in, who have engaged directly with you. It's not like you bought it somewhere else or you rented somebody's list. It was first party data. Yeah. And in statistics and modeling, when you're trying to find let's say you want to build an audience out of publicly available data, and people who you think might be you know, open to your message or open to buying your product, buying your service, whatever. You're you're looking for people who are who an algorithm might decide are have predictive characteristics. And an algorithm looks at something called an observation. Uh, machine learning we call it an observation. An observation is a thing that you want to instruct the algorithm with. You want to say, find more people where this thing is true, or these these sets of things are true. And so, what we had at the very beginning, because of our launch, because you know, the the eight of us stood up and said, We're not gonna do we're not gonna go along with this and we're gonna do everything that we know how to do, you can use our, our particular set of skills to help take this guy down. Mm. And uh, and we have some we have some credibility here because we've all spent the better parts of our careers helping elect Republicans, or a lot of us had. And so when we stood up and said, Not this time, no more, this has to end, he has to go down, a lot of people Organically rushed to that cause, they wanted to help. Okay, and a lot of those people were Republicans. Wow, in the very beginning. Yeah, and what we had was this beautiful sample of a lot of people who raised their hands and said, "Yes, I'm in. Count me in. Mm -hmm. Like, I I I identify with your cause. I want to help. Whether it's you know giving five bucks or just giving you my email address, I want to stay in touch. I want to I want to be a part of this thing, whatever it's going to become. Those people are in statistical terms observations so okay so all of those people had something in common especially the republicans if you get rid of the democrats and we love you democrats right we need you but we were after only republicans and and right leaning independents so we took those people and we fed them into an algorithm and we said find us more people like these people mm. and we said can we find more people like these in the states that we care about because this was not a 50 state operation yeah right this was very narrowly targeted to one to four percent. The Bannon line, as as everyone's yeah, familiar a with, right? line, yeah. Steve Bannon said, if these guys can peel off one to two, 2 to four percent, they're a real threat. Right. So we knew in the beginning, like, okay, he sees it too. So. We're looking for one to four percent in key swing states, and that's where we that's ultimately how we began to build those. Now, a whole lot of stuff happened after that. COVID happened yeah. right all after this. Literally yeah. right after Cooper Union, after our launch at Cooper Union. Oh, that's Union. right. Were you there, by the way? I Cooper wasn't Union? at Cooper okay. Union, yeah. Right after our launch at Cooper Union was when was when COVID hit and we were going into lockdown, like literally the week or two after that. Yeah. And that changed everything. And Mike and his team. Came up with this. The the the, the, the this is going to sound a little bit crass to some people, but when we when we got around to uh, placing our advertising, which we started early, the the strategy was nicknamed "buying into the spike." Okay. And you should ask him about that sometime. Buying into the Buying spike. Buying into the spike. Now, what that meant was we were we were placing advertising. Mike and his team had realized that as COVID was spreading, into oh. into. Uh, swing states yeah. and into suburban communities, they had identified a uh, a trend where right after at the tail end of the incubation period, which was about fourteen days, right, yeah, ten to fourteen days, toward the tail end of the incubation period, in the areas where COVID was spreading, Trump's numbers would drop. Yep, his favorables would drop. Yep, and so about ten days prior to the end of that tail we would start placing advertising to driving down Trump's numbers in those suburban areas to try and ride ride the trend and and exacerbate that drop in numbers. Yeah. And and anyone who works in politics knows or, or understands how to read polls, usually favorables precede the ballot test. So on a poll you'll have an image test which says, you know, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of this person? And then they'll also ask a ballot test, which is do you plan to vote for this person? And usually, what happens is the ballot test doesn't move at the same time as the image test does. It oh. moves several weeks later. Right. It's delayed.
1: So you saw that it's in a a lagging the lagging indicator, the Virginia governor's race. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you just saw that precisely. Interesting.
2: Yeah. So ah. anyway, that's one one that's one anecdote we we could talk for oh, hours man. about that. So
1: I have to have you back because yeah, there's sure. like we didn't even get like halfway into like all my questions. Um, but okay, so I do want to. I do want to ask you about a couple things. Yeah. Speaking of Virginia governor's race, so we just got past Virginia, New Jersey, mm-hmm. New York City mayors, California's recall. What are some of the key takeaways from the mid-midterms, uh, the 2021, and what? how does that inform you about the 2022, uh, the, the, the actual midterm, Yeah. you know, the 2022s? What, what, sh- what takeaways should we be gleaning if we're legitimately concerned about things like democracy as we know it oh and God. truth and, yeah. you know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. OK. That's a, that's a lot of questions there. Sorry. Uh, that's OK. But <laughs> remind me to come back to democracy. The, the the 2021 elections. So if you look at Virginia, one takeaway is that it, it's clear, I think, to everybody that Glenn Youngkin will be the model for what Republicans try to do, which is to. Mm -hmm. Use as much of the Trump support base as he can, winking, nodding, without ever explicitly condoning the big lie. As a matter of fact, he did denounce the big lie. Uh, he said the election was fair and valid, and he's called Joe Biden the president, right? He's not hes not bending the knee to Trump's big lie.
1: Is that why you think McAuliffe tried to do Trump? Yeah, instead of course. Of like, McAuliffe
2: tried to run against Donald Trump, and guess what? Donald Trump's not on the ballot. So right. Democrats democrats were testing a theory that they could run against Donald Trump everywhere and for always. But it's but not Trump.
1: It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's democracy. We know.
2: Yeah, but that's not very sexy. And unfortunately, that doesn't turn out swing voters. Ah. So... The, 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 the takeaway is you can you can expect to see a lot more uh, Republican candidates in the vein of Glenn Youngkin, and they're going to try and have their cake and eat it too, or whatever the metaphor is. They're going to try and have it both ways. Yeah. So 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 that's one thing. I also think they're largely going to be successful, and that's largely going to be because of the economy, and and inflation. And I can hear people saying, "But inflation's whatever people believe it is." Well, that's partially true. Yes. What what if but what if gas prices come down? What if milk starts coming? Joe Biden's still president. Well, that's possible, but I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, if you look at the you know basically what the Fed is saying, if you look at what the economists are saying, this they're saying it might alleviate by the end of 2022. That's mm. their optimistic case, right? And their job is to keep people from freaking out. Yeah. And they're saying it's not going to alleviate until end of 2022. Now. It's it's probably going to last longer than that, and also, inflation is a lot worse than they're telling them. How everybody, it is. It's
1: underestimated. It's, Even that six point something percent. It,
2: they were they were hoping that it would be five point nine. It ended up being six point two. That was the CPI. Now the CPI is a, it's a deeply flawed metric for inflation because because of the because of the methodologies that they use, it doesn't include certain things like real estate prices. It doesn't include sort of the cost of capital, which ultimately, if businesses are having to pay more for you know, their supplies, yeah. it Ultimately, it doesn't include any of that. right? And here's the real problem with CPI. It is supposed to be a measure of the cost of goods over a long period of time, a cost of a basket of goods over a long period of time. But since about 1980 or so, the Bureau of Labor, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the VLS, mm-hmm has been essentially manipulating that metric by swapping in and out different goods of, in the basket. So for example, if you buy chicken every day and it's, let's just say it's $5 a pound. Yeah. And suddenly the price of chicken is like $15 a pound. You're probably not gonna buy chicken. Right. Because you can't afford it. You're gonna buy steak instead. If if steak is a comparable, right? Right. But That doesn't speak to the fact that uh, so what they'll do is swap out the chicken and put in the steak in the co- in the fixed basket of goods right <laughs> so what they're trying to do is compensate for the ways humans will change their behavior as a result of price increases as opposed to just measuring the effect of the price increase yeah which would have dramatically driven that up do so you see what i mean so they're 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 swapping out the goods in the basket in order to artificially keep that number as low as possible because when that number goes up people freak out and that's bad for the government and that's not just democrats it's republicans too they have this is how they it's a, it's a PR measure. Yeah. Kind of.
1: so. so that number yeah. and that sentiment is not going to improve no. by November of 2022.
2: No. More importantly, people are going to feel it. Yeah. Um, yeah. People are going to feel it. Even if they do, if they, for example, if they have to start buying beef instead of chicken, for for to use our really simplistic example, well, some people don't eat beef. They don't eat red meat. Yeah. Right? They're, people will feel these changes and they will feel having to make changes in their day-to-day purchasing habits. Yeah, And if the government seems out of touch with that, that's not going to help them. Right. So.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. and so just to be clear. And by the
2: way, just, you know, the, the, the elephant <laughs> of the room is that the, you know, the party in power usually loses in the midterms, like full stop. That is the historical trend and that, they got that going against them too. So.
1: Yeah. I've had this conversation before. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily buy that. Not, it's a technical data point. Yeah. Um, but but redistricting is is real, and conditions on the ground are even more real.
2: And education is now a major concern for a lot of parents, and the swing voters tend to be suburban white and female, and they're the people who are most spun up about education right now, and probably rightly so, so that's gonna be a major issue. And Democrats need to learn how to talk about education and not say, you're stupid for wanting to be involved. (laughs) They can't! Really
1: bad strategy, It's really bad strategy.
2: (laughs) It's just really bad strategy. All right. meet, meet them where they are. Have a conversation about what you think the curriculum should be, how you think we should teach about race in schools. Meet them where they are. Yeah. Don't call them stupid for caring about what their kids think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That McAuliffe, uh, oh,
2: man. I know. That was, that was he really stepped in it.
1: So there was so much that we did not. Get into. I wanted to talk to you about Sam. Uh, oh ser- yeah. Serve America Movement. Serve America Movement. Um, yeah. Viability of a robust independent party. Okay. Um, Andrew
2: Yang is now working on that. Basically, doing exactly what the Sam model was. He's now he's now often doing that, well, which I hope that works for him. But. Not.
1: <laughs> we really don't have time for <laughs> I this. Know, but, sorry. <laughs> but I, I I wonder if there is a a block, kind of what the um, problem solver yeah. caucus is, that. Can hold more sway the way Manchin and Cinema are in, in the Senate right now? But is there a block that can agree? Like, can Liz Cheney find common ground with uh, Gottheimer and Kinzinger find mm-hmm. common ground with Spamberger? You know, and, and say, okay, we care about democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, these are important things. And it's kind of um, disheartening to hear you say, this is not a sexy enough thing. You know, like in California 25. Yeah. Mike Garcia should mm-hmm. represent the purple district that we are. Totally. But he's voting to overturn the election. We and should, then talk, he's,
2: about we oh should really talk about democracy. Oh, my God. Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. January 6th commission. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's paying attention to it. Like so many people are not paying attention to it. And they can almost be forgiven for not paying attention to it because, you know, they got to buy gas, they got to buy groceries, they got to take their kids to school, Uh, they got to live life, right? So I live in DC. So this is like all I think about most days democracy and, you know. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I just spoke with Adam Schiff yesterday and had him on the podcast, one of the January 6th uh, committee members. Yeah. I am profoundly concerned about the future of not just like our version of democracy, but the idea of democracy, the idea of classical liberal values here and around the globe. And what we're seeing here in America is not an aberration.
1: Yeah, it's, it's happening it's all happening, over the world. It's
2: happening everywhere. And Mike Madrid and I have talked about this at length for, for months and months now. And he's actually the first one who suggested that if democracy fails in the United States, it will fail everywhere. Mm -hmm. If it falls here, it will fall everywhere else. We are the longest standing democracy living right now. We are. We're it. And we don't care. (laughs) As a country, we don't care. Now, that doesn't mean that this election in 2020 was the most secure election that we have ever had. Audited, Mm -hmm. umpteen times. It is the most secure election we've ever had in this country. And yet, the thing that made it secure were the nonpartisan election workers, the machine, the, the unsexy machinery of democracy, that just kept grinding along because it didn't know how to do anything else? Because right. it has done this for so long, right? We've all we've all shared this idea that we're all in this together, and the rules are the rules, and whoever gets the most f- votes wins. Donald Trump threw that out the window. He broke it. He broke it. He <laughs> absolutely broke it. That doesn't mean he broke the election process. It means he broke the spirit. Mm. And what they're doing right now, the Trumpists, is undertaking a systematic effort everywhere the system worked, they're trying to weaken it. They're going to those joints, those gears, and they're trying to replace them with flackies.
1: State AGs, state legislators.
2: Secretaries of state, boards of elections. The people who actually have the authority to overturn an election, they're trying to substitute those people now with loyalists. It's brilliant. I mean, from a tactical standpoint, it's exactly uh, its exactly what you would want to do if you wanted to overthrow. If you wanted to actually overturn an election, this is how you would do it. And I believe, call me an alarmist, but I believe at some point in the next handful of years, they will successfully overturn an election and it'll probably be a local one. Yeah. Um, you know, it'll probably be a small one at first, but it's going to happen. It, 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 it's going to happen. So yeah. my point is we have to, we have to care about this stuff. We have to care about it, not just at the very local level Yeah, in your own community. This needs to be on the ballot. And if you can't, if you can't get a candidate to sort of affirmatively commit to Protecting the machinery of democracy. First of all, please understand how it works. And if you can't get a candidate to, you know, say yes, this was this is a dangerous thing, and and we need to be protecting this, I, I would feel very nervous about voting for him or her. Yeah, I mean, this is it, it is it is issue number one for me.
1: Um, Absolutely. Uh,
2: and then we also need. To, there was this beautiful piece by Anne Applebaum, um, who's also been on the podcast, and she wrote this wonderful long piece in The Atlantic just a couple of days ago called "The Bad Guys Are Winning." Yeah. And I would encourage anybody listening to this to go read that long form piece because if you struggle with abstractions of language like, you know, attack on our democracy and you know, the foundation of our republic no. and blah, 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 what the hell does that mean to most people? It doesn't she, mean anything.
1: She has a frame of reference from she, where exactly, she's lived the exactly, last few decades, Exactly. Exactly. So, and yeah. if you
2: want a preview of what it looks like when democracies are subverted, go read this piece. Real stories, real people. Yeah. Some of it will give you nightmares, and it's happening now. Coming soon to a democracy near you. It's happening right now. The fight of the century is going to be between autocracy and democracy. It's going to be between free societies and unfree societies, between liberal values and authoritarian values. That that is the epic showdown that we are in now, happening. And, man, I don't don't know that we make it.
1: Well, I do want to... Not not to put on rose-colored glasses, yeah. but I do want to say that while we can't snap our fingers and win this huge war overnight, yeah. or even in a year, yep. uh, there are small things that are yes. happening because it's a multi-front war. Totally, totally, right? Totally. It's a sociological, media, political war, right? And it's not it's not you know one side against the other side the way we think of it where I am more of a libertarian, and right. I want less regulation, right. and I want this tax. It's not that. No.
2: It's, it's about, about values and character.
1: Values, character, uh, liberal, you know, liberal value, like mm-hmm. classical liberal values. Yep. So what encourages me about sitting here with you is that one huge piece of it is that there's a huge media complex that's feeding into the problem. Mm-hmm. But there's also an independent emerging media complex, not complex, I would say independent media outlets that are emerging that do have principled voices that are using, we think of social media as evil. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's a tool, mm-hmm. right? And we can use it, uh, now, We it's not to say we shouldn't pay attention to algorithms and all these things, but we can use it for good things. We're the human beings behind it, right? And you as a human being, and Mike Madrid as a human being, and Lucy Caldwell, and all the different people that you have mm-hmm. on politicology is an encouragement to me, because while it doesn't take the entire audience of Fox News and OAN and and Newsmax and all that, Maybe 1% or 2% are listening a little bit more to politicology than they are to Sean Hannity, yeah. right? 1% yeah. or 2%, just a little bit, independent, ethical voices that, that are having these important conversations, right? And, and I'm not going to be running for president. Uh, none of my friends, immediate friends are going to be running for president, but they might be running for school board. They might be running for town council. You know, so in little ways, it's it's a matter of degrees. Yeah. And what's so encouraging about politicology and and what what uh, what folks like you are doing, uh, uh, you know, advisory opinions and the dispatch and the bulwark, mm-hmm. These voices are are introducing themselves into media and the content that we uh, as a culture consume uh, and and how we're thinking and f- starting to think independently and remembering that there's this moral. Substratum—that's yes. that, important to uh, acknowledge and and think about every day, and not uh, not have this thing like, oh, I'm on that team, I'm on the Trump team, and forget about all the rest of these morals like truth mm-hmm. and like being neighborly and and the fruit of the spirit, love, mm-hmm. joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness—all these things are still good, right? Yeah. But if I'm if I'm on the Trump team, that's all that matters, all and matters. and beating my my opponent, anybody who's one degree outside of the Trump team is just them, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm on a tangent. Totally, here. <laughs> total tangent. But I just want to say why politicalology, politicalology plus is is really encouraging to me. As one benefit, I do want to take, even though we're over time, yeah. I think it's important to take just a moment for you to tell us about oriented to love. Oh,
2: oriented to love. Okay, so this is a charity. Uh, it was a nonprofit, but I have a very uh, intimate experience with this with this charity. So. As part of my sort of deconstructing phase, reconciling with my, you know, with my heritage and unpacking all that evangelicalism, <laughs> I uh, I met a woman at a conference. This was a this was a conference in twenty fourteen about basically it was it was a gay Christian conference and uh, people who were advocating for LGBT inclusion in uh, in evangelical spaces and. I didn't really know this woman, but she. We were sitting next to next to each other in the front row, listening to something, and I was kind of getting emotional. I don't remember what was being said. Oh, it was David Gushy. David Gushy. Are you familiar with him? No. Long time, sort of Baptist figurehead, very well respected, who wrote a book, basically saying we got it wrong about gay people, mm-hmm. and he was there speaking, delivering this uh, this speech where he was basically introducing the book and saying, yeah, well, I I wrote this because I realized now that we got it wrong doctrinally. And so I was kind of emotional at that moment. And this woman sitting next to me, very motherly silver hair, leans over and she sort of whispers in my ear and like, you know, says something like, you know, one day you'll be able to share your experience with your parents. And, um, and I just sort of, uh, like, like bawling. Right. turns out she runs these dialogues Uh, her name is Kristen, Uh, she runs these dialogues and she gathers 12 people in a retreat center for like three days. And they're all uh, come from a Christian tradition. And within the group, she tries to make it as diverse as possible, meaning theologically diverse, sexually diverse, racially diverse, she tries to get as, so half of them will be side A and half of them will be side B, meaning affirming or non-affirming. And then she tries to mix in as much diversity within their own personal experiences as possible. And everyone enters into this space agreeing not to debate and mm. not to argue. No one is there to persuade. Right. They're coming only to listen. And a whole weekend to spend with a whole bunch of people like this is a lot. Great. It's a big commitment. Yeah. And I don't want to give anything away, but what she does in those spaces is masterful, and it is heart-changing, and it is transformative. And I, she, after a long time of going back and forth, she finally persuaded me to go to one, which I did. I didn't really <laughs> want to do, and I can't think of more valuable, impactful—I hate the word impactful, but I'm going to say impactful—work. Uh, That needs to be done because that's how hearts change and minds don't change until hearts do. Mm. And that's a principle that I know to be true from what I do for a living, did for a living. Yeah. She's she's got it. She's got like she creates magic in those spaces. And um I think it's a model for uh much bigger and different kinds of conversations, but she's focused on on the LGBT community within Christian spaces and the suffering that's been caused w- with these groups and, and how to reconcile two you know, profoundly, you know, different and in some cases, warring features of an identity. Yeah. And it's, it's very special. So Kristen Kamarnicki Oriented to Love is the name of the organization. And
1: uh, we'll be putting that yeah. in our show notes uh, and some, some of the platforms don't have the links. So we'll also be putting the link to Oriented to Love in our social posts throughout the week. That we're airing this um, this uh, conversation. And uh, speaking of social, how yeah. can we find you, Politicology, oh. Politicology Plus?
2: I'm occasionally on Twitter. Occasionally. <laughs> we have a love hate relationship, Twitter and I. <laughs> I I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow, and Politicology is politicology.com.
1: So if you do want to belong to a club of like total <laughs> geeks about po- politics and feel like you know and are going to be really impressive at dinner parties because of how much you know, uh, definitely I can't hi- more highly recommend Politicology Plus. It's one of the best. <laughs> I, I don't even know how much I'm spending we, on it on a monthly basis. But it,
2: we have so much fun with it. Oh, it's, it's so just, great. It, everybody loves when we go into our Politicology Plus segments. It's like, oh, this is this is the after party. It's it's a lot of fun. it yeah. feel like they can let their hair down a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's great. It really is terrific. And um Wow, I re- there was so much I did. I you know crypto. I, you didn't oh get God, to ask crypto. me any questions. I, well, That's I
2: cool. actually wanted to ask. Just, oh. just uh, I'm just curious. Like, one of and actually, this is something that I would also ask employees that I would be interviewing for jobs and stuff because I think it's such an opening question. But a lot of what drives what I'm doing right now is my own just sense of curiosity. Yeah. And I'm insatiably curious. So, outside of this conversation, yeah. what we're doing right now, what is just one thing? you're curious about, just deeply, cellularly curious about? Oh, boy.
1: Um, a, A lot of things come to mind. I'm trying to narrow it down to one or two. One is, on a fundamental level, what are assumptions that I don't even know that I have that are different from someone who's 10 or 15 years younger than me or 30 years younger than me. And how can I understand those differences and how they shape not just how we think or decisions that we make, values that we have, but how we think of who we are.
0: Hmm.
1: I, I don't know if that, is that too abstract? Yeah, no. I wanna better understand folks that aren't me you know, mm-hmm. so that we can, um, we can help each other, you know, so that I can help. I mean, selfishly my own kids, I want to better understand what makes them tick. Uh, I still care about them. You know, I think I know what's good for them and best for them and healthy for them and all that, but I might be wrong about some of that stuff, you know? So, uh, I, I just want to be open to the possibility that I am wrong about some of that stuff and, and continue learning. Uh, but m- more importantly, just really better understand them, and more broadly, people who think differently than me. Mm. You know? Man, that's, that's one of the first things that comes to mind. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for this is this has been a lot of great conversation. Yeah. I'm I've I've very much enjoyed it.
1: Oh, good. Good. <laughs> That's good, because I'm gonna invite you back. Okay. And uh yeah. Um so uh I have to say this. As always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe. I feel so weird saying this now. <laughs> Do like, it. buy Coca-Cola. Hit, it. <laughs> <laughs> hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcast. More importantly, tell a friend about us. Now go talk politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Boom. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.